This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me. My guest Molly Ringwald is an actor, author, singer, and all-around icon. Like for so many others, she was an early formative cinematic presence for me with her movies like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. This was a time when female teen main protagonists were few and far between. Molly Ringwald is now starring in the TV series Feud, Capote vs. the Swans as Joanne Carson. Carson was author Truman Capote's close friend, particularly during the last difficult years of his life. He actually died at Carson's house. This is the second project that Ringwald does with super producer and TV creator Ryan Murphy. Her first was as Jeffrey Dahmer's stepmother in Dahmer. Ringwald has a history with Truman Capote that goes way back. Her first onstage appearance at age three was in a production of Capote's The Grass Harp. In her early teens, with her roles in John Hughes' films Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink, she became one of the most famous actors and teens in the world. She was on the cover of Time magazine, and it was a level of fame that was incomprehensible. At 20, she went to France and ended up staying there for many years, and she says that that felt like she could breathe again. Molly Ringwald has worked with Cassavetes, Goddard, and Cindy Sherman. She's played Sally Bowles on Broadway, she writes novels, and has translated books from French. It was fascinating to talk to her about all that, her complicated feelings towards her early teen films, her Swedish roots, Capote vs. the Swans, and the incredible group of actors she's worked with on the show. The Swans, as Truman Capote called them, are played by... Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Chloe Sevigny, Naomi Watts, to name a few. They play the New York socialites in the 60s and 70s who were close friends and confidants of Capote, played by Tom Hollander. In 1975, Capote wrote a gossipy and thinly veiled account of the Swans' goings-on and secrets for Esquire titled Le Côte Basque 1965. Suffice it to say, it majorly ruffled some swan feathers. We made New York the capital of the world. The center of everything. And who is at the center of that center? Truman. Truman. Truman Capote. He's our great protector and our best friend. We tell him everything. Even the awful things we've all done to each other. You earn the face you deserve. Yes, I think so. Oh, my. Truman. These ladies are swans. Why'd you write about them? Because they are beautiful and predatory. Why can't it be everything all at once? Sex, money, and an endless invention. <laughs> Truman Capote's famous black-and-white ball that took place at the Plaza Hotel in 1966 has gone down in history as one of the most iconic parties ever. Just a few days before my talk with Molly, the show had their premiere and after-party, and of course it was at the Plaza Hotel with a black-and-white dress code. I had to ask her all about it, the dresses and what it was like. 
Oh, it was really fun. Um, the the invitation was uh, to to come. It was strongly encouraged uh, that we wear black and white, or black or white. And uh, so my dress uh, was uh, from Rodarte. Um, they did a custom dress for me. Uh, I wanted something that was, you know, really sort of big and and um, you know, sort of like fancier than I normally do. Um, and it was it was really fun. It was beautiful. It's like a swan with a white, like a feather boa type of thing coming. Yeah, yeah. It was it was black velvet. Had like a halter um, that had a you know a bow in the back going going down the back, and then um, and then sort of underneath there was tulle. Um, and you know it had a really great uh, silhouette shape because um, I you know I w- I knew that I, all of the ladies were going to be bringing it. You know, yeah. all of the, you, <laughs> you know, were. I we we have Naomi and Chloe <laughs> and you know uh Demi and they they're all such incredible, you know, fashion icons, Diane and Callista. So I, I knew that I had to, you know, look look my best. Well, you did, and you had a second outfit, which was more because I'm very self conscious about dresses, but like a tux that was yeah. Oh my god, I, <laughs> I had a tux. Um, I I was originally just going to wear the. I heard that the other ladies were doing a costume change and I thought, you know, okay, well then I have to do a costume change. Um, (laughs) So I ended up wearing this uh, tuxedo by a designer uh, who's a friend of mine named Todd Thomas uh, that I just loved. It it was, it very, uh, it felt very kind of, you know, Saint Laurent, Helmut Newton, you know, that famous, uh, photograph of the smoking you know that one that I'm talking about yeah um you know very chic silhouette so um yeah so I had two very different looks in the same night it was really fun well it was amazing it felt so right for what you guys are doing with this amazing show and I want to get into that now in the story you play Joanne tell us who she is Joanne Carson was the second wife of uh, Johnny Carson, who was a very famous uh, talk show host um, of The Tonight Show for years. I mean, I, I I don't know actually how many years he did The Tonight Show, but it was it was a really long time, and decades, he sort of yeah. was yeah decades, and and he was kind of like one of the most important people in Hollywood, and she was his wife and um and then she divorced him um and and sort of became a little bit of a of a social outcast herself because you know she went from being the the wife of the most important man in hollywood to to sort of yeah not not really the divorcee um, yeah she was a divorcee um and i think it was one of the things that really bonded her to truma capote um they were sort of outcasts together you know, towards the end, I think she was really one of the only people who stood by him. And, you know, he lived in her house and I think he, you know, he died in her arms and um, or if not in her arms, you know, in in the house. But she was really, uh, you know, it was just the two of them. Sorry, it's my um, my my dog is barking. Oh, hi. <laughs> That's this, good. This is Millie Ringwald. <laughs> hi, Millie Ringwald. Oh, my God. She's the cutest. <laughs> yeah, Joanne was actually even buried next to him. I understand. They were close. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when when Capote was uh, uh, cremated, 
I think, you know, she she gave half of the ashes to uh, his his former lover. And then I think she kept half of them herself. And then, yeah, they were interred next to each other. Um, Where was he in his life, in his psyche when he was closest with Joanne during this period? As you were mentioning, outcast from these swans in New York that he was. So she was really taking care of him both physically and, and psychologically. I think she was doing what she could, um, but I don't think that there was any saving him. I think he really was too far gone by that point. Um, I I actually remember Truma Capote from when I was little. Um, I The first play that I ever did when I was three years old was uh, an adaptation of The Grass Harp, which was a, a an autobiographical piece of work. Um, so I was always interested in him. And then when I was little growing up, I would see him on the the Tonight Show or, you know, or Dick Cavett, some show that my parents were watching um, or, you know, that movie Murder by Death that he was in. And he always was so fascinating to me because I thought, who is this guy? Who is this man? And he seems so strange. And he had that that sort of otherworldly voice and it, you know. He was, um, he really kind of seemed like he was just completely falling apart, you know? And I remember asking my, my parents about, you know, my mom, like, why, why is he like, why is he talking like that? Why does he seem, you know, he was drunk. He was basically drunk on, on national television. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when they were friends. And I think, I think she really loved him and, you know, believed in him as, as a writer. I think she really thought that he was a genius and he really was I mean he he really was an incredible writer but I think he really got this whole thing with the high society and and the women and and being cast out I think it it really kind of did him in that whole he just lost he lost his focus part of him angry as well at the whole situation or sort of bitter perhaps yeah I think he I mean look you know he he could have written something and not expose them in the way that he did i think he he was he was rather uh cruel in in the way that he told their secrets there there's a way that you can write and use people you know as material but mask it and change it and use your imagination do it in such a way where you're not um you know exposing them like that uh it was very self-destructive i don't think that he wanted to be cast out mm-hmm. um but i think that maybe there could have been some anger at sort of feeling like their court jester as well you know there could have been some conflicted feelings in him lived by the never let the truth get in the way of a good story and he said things like all literature is gossip i mean that was sort of part of his that was kind of his thing. I mean, that, those, those, you know, he, he was really great with the bon mot. Like he, he had the great quip and he was, but I, I feel like he really cared about his writing. And, and I really do think that he was an incredibly gifted writer. And I feel like there's no reason at all why he couldn't have written about them and, and still managed to, um, to sort of maintain their their dignity in a right. way like there there was a way to do that he could have used his imagination a little bit more <laughs> he didn't have to 
right at the way, you know, because of course, like he, he's, you know, of course that was coming. Nobody would have been happy um, with that, with being exposed in the way that, that they were. And I want to mention your poster, Tom Hollander, who plays him. He is absolutely spectacular as him. And and I was thinking today is, is the 10 year anniversary of Philip Seymour Hoffman's death, who of course sort of made a version of Capote, which was incredible as well. And Tom Hollander did his own thing and is just as powerful and magnetic in this setting. So um, what was that like to see him transform? You know, it was, it was extraordinary. I, I have been very lucky in the, this is my second project that I've done with Ryan Murphy and both times, all of my scenes were with incredible actors you know in Dahmer all of my scenes were with Richard Jenkins and you know it was it was a blessing to you know anytime you're paired with somebody who is that good it just sort of you know it brings it brings you up um it's it just makes everything so much easier um so I I didn't know what it was going to be like I'd never met Tom Hollander you know I, I knew I knew his work but I didn't know what it was going to be like or how we were going to be together. And from the very moment that I met him, we just, we got along so well. I mean, he made me laugh. He was, you know, but he was, he was extraordinary because I I would be talking with him at one moment and he would be Tom with that incredible, beautiful voice that he has, mm-hmm. you know, that, that accent and like, he's very charming as him. And then, and then all of a sudden it would be, you know, Oh, I have to get into, you know, and, and he would start getting into, to Truman and start listening to, you know, he, he was always had access to recordings of Truman. And then he would, he would just, all of a sudden his posture would change and it would be just, it was, it, it it really seemed like you were watching a magician, you know, you're watching like, yeah, how how, it, it was really exciting. Um, you know, it was such a transformation and, you know, unlike a lot of American actors who I think would just stay in character all the time. I, I don't know how Philip Seymour Hoffman was when he was making it, but I, I can imagine a lot of actors just kind of staying with it because it's such a specific character. I, I would think it would be hard to go in and out, but that's what Tom did. He just went in and out and in and out sort of effortlessly. And it was it was really beautiful to watch it. Amazing. And you guys are so great together. And speaking of Ryan Murphy, um, what is this visionary power that he has to reimagine these stories that are so fascinating for us again and again, like right into the zeitgeist of what we think? What do you think it is he has? Uh, I don't know, but I would like some of it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, he he is he seems like he's he's tireless. I don't know when the man sleeps. Um, you know, he has so many different projects going all the time. He, um, you know, he really just, I think does have a gift for sort of tapping into the zeitgeist. Um, but also, you know, really kind of tapping into what is interesting to him. And, you know, I think he's very interested by, um, obviously, you know, LGBT, culture um you know he's interested in people that have you know been disenfranchised he's interested in um 
you know, women and also women of a certain age, um, which I'm, I fall into that women of a certain age category, you know, he's, and I'm, I'm super (laughs) grateful for that. Yeah. (laughs) As, as are most women, but unlike the rest of Hollywood who wants to put women out to pasture once they're no longer 22 years old, not Ryan, he's interested in telling stories that other people aren't interested in telling you know Mm -hmm. and and he does it I don't know I'm really sort of intrigued by him I find him a very intriguing uh person uh and you know and I have a lot of respect for what he's what he's doing um and sort of you know the the and and also the way that he he puts it's almost like he has his own little studio you know he works with a lot of the same uh actors but he also works with the same um you know crew uh same directors and you know the costumes in in this were you know Lou and Rudy you know I worked with Rudy Mance on on Dahmer um but Lou I think has done almost all of his projects and you know um and and I really love that I love people who who work with the same people and and you know he builds he builds this trust uh, yeah, around him around Yeah. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. And speaking of those women, you talked about them before. I mean, we have you, Naomi Watts, and Diane Lane, Demi Moore, Chloe Seventy. I mean, just to name a few. This is, as you were saying, women of a certain age. You've had these incredible careers and then kept them going. When you guys get together and just share wisdoms of how you managed to get through the business. What are some of the things you learned being together with this group? You know, I think when most of my stuff was with Tom, Mm -hmm. so I didn't have a lot of scenes with the other women. Um, I had one scene at the black and white ball and, and then I had one scene, I think with Chloe, but most of my stuff was with Tom. So usually when we see each other, it's when we're doing press stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, usually it's it's just really nice to, you know, usually we're just laughing at at stuff that we've been through. And it's, you know, it's not very often where you get to, like, talk to other people who have been through a similar experience, who have been through these incredible highs and also lows and, you know, have been rejected and, you know, applauded and rejected and all of that stuff. And I just find it very... Um, comforting in a way to be around all of these other women who have had, you know, similar, not exactly the same as me, but similar, similar experiences. And they're all just so nice and dynamic and also like really supportive. Like I mm-hmm. think all, all of the women, I mean, Chloe went on the tonight show a couple of days before I did, you know, with Jimmy Fallon and, and like, she told a story about like crying when she met me. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was so sweet so like so lovely and you know and there's just something that's so nice about 
women supporting other women because I I don't really feel like when I grew up we were necessarily encouraged in that way I feel like we were kind of pitted against each other and competitive with each other in a way um and and I don't feel like that's the case anymore I feel like women have really banded together a lot more or at least maybe it's our age and our wisdom I don't know but that's kind of the way that it feels to me Oh, it feels like that very much. And I mean, especially compared to the group of women you guys are playing. <laughs> I mean, that's such an oppressive, oof, the sadness in that. In And I mean, I'm sure they they supported each other in some ways, but just in general. that Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't really feel like those women led very happy lives. I mean, I don't really know. I didn't know any of them um, myself, but yeah, I don't, it was, it was a time where women really were expected to be, you know, ornaments um, and they were expected to, to just pretty much exist uh, on the arm of a, of a powerful man. And they're all women who could have run businesses themselves. I mean, they were oh, all so powerful powerful and smart and influential and yeah they they could have easily all run businesses if they wanted to in a different time they weren't they could not do it in in the time uh where where they lived when they lived and talking about being in female influence i mean for me movies as a kid for me, it was Rebel Without a Cause. It was E.T., um, Elliot, and, and and things like that, The Outsiders. And then Samantha came from 16 Candles, and then Claire from Breakfast Club, and then Andy and Pretty and Pink. And I realized that there's huge blind spots in these movies. But how do you feel about being such an incredible influence and or, or a rephrase that's just such an importance for someone like me someone who was a teen in those years and because it really was something else it was a different thing I had not seen that portrayal of a girl before yeah um I I think it was you know I I I have mixed feelings about the films I I you know, which I've written about extensively uh, in the New Yorker. Um, I I love them. You know, I, I there's so much that I love about them, um, and and the fact that and 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 the fact that they still resonate today. You know, there's still kids that come up to me who are huge fans of the of the movies because they feel they connect with them. They, they were saying something that, that hadn't, it hadn't been done before or since, you know, he, he managed to tap into the psyche of, of young people in a way that, that nobody had done. And particularly like having a female protagonist. I mean, there was just, yes, no, that was, a that was huge. I mean, to have, to, to be the, the lead in, in a movie and, and have the movie sort of you know, everything that happens is because of this character. I was moving the action along. It was, it was everything that was happening to my character. Like that was extraordinary. Um, yes, the movies are flawed, but they were also very representative of their time. And, you know, I, I watched the breakfast club the other day with my 14 year old, I have 14 year old twins and, um, and I hadn't watched it in a really long time. I think maybe the last time I'd watched it was with my elder daughter when she was younger 
And my kids had been wanting to see it for a long time. And I kept sort of putting it off, putting it off. And we finally watched it. And, you know, I noticed that they didn't take out their phones once, which See, is that's, major. that's the sign. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, that's a sign right there. You know, on the other hand, like, so they were really drawn in and which is no small feat because of the way that media moves now and the way that things are edited and cut and just what is being offered to kids now is so different, you know, I mean, it's all like they're, they're on this like Marvel diet and it's, it's hard to know how to watch movies. And anytime we try to show them a movie, you know, from the seventies or eighties or even nineties, you know, it's really hard for them to not want to pick up their phone because they're not used to, um, to having that kind of, you know, drawn out focus, the way that movies were, you know, just constructed they were slower and you know so I really didn't know how that they were they were going to respond to that but they they were totally intrigued on the other hand they really took issue with you know they of course none of them have you know neither my son nor my my daughter had had read the article that I wrote but everything that I took issue with they immediately clocked like why is she going with this guy who who is so like he's harassing her the whole time he's sexually harassing her like why does she why does she want to be with like they were honestly like confused like bewildered by it and um and and it's you know it was an interesting conversation like well it was a different time yeah <laughs> like that was like seduction and you know in the 80s like you know you were supposed we to that go was for so this. romantic <laughs> yeah like that was hot yeah. You know, it's like good guys, guys that like treat you well are, 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 you know, that was synonymous with boring when I was, when I was growing up. And obviously that's changed mm -hmm. now, you know, but it took a while. I mean, it took me a while in my own life to sort of get over that idea that if somebody was treating me badly, that didn't mean that they were interesting or smarter oh, yeah. than me, you know? And that's like a lesson that, you know, that's, that's on us, that's on our society. And I mean, that's yeah. how you see yourself for the longest yeah. time. Um, yeah. So of course, but it's also, if we're talking specifically about breakfast club, it's also a group of kids who get together and talk about everything they're going through and terrible home lives and and just that I mean what if yeah. we would be doing more of that today <laughs> just talking yeah, with well, people from different sections of of life yes mm. yes exactly and I think that that is what for me makes the the movie really durable and makes it something that I'm ultimately really proud of is the fact that yes he managed to do this movie and cast these characters and the way that we all interacted together uh you know, I mean, it's extraordinary. It, you know, it's all one set. It's practically a play, you know, uh, and and it managed to be this big hit in this movie that endures. And I think it's because it really is hard when you're in middle school or high school. It really is hard to talk and it's hard to, like, expose yourself and to be honest and to be vulnerable like that is is still incredibly hard. The other day I, w I was in the car with um, my my daughter who was, I don't know, she was, I think, 13 at the time. And she was talking to her other 13 year old. It's really entertaining when when you're in the car and you're listening yeah. to them. And they were talking about like everything that was embarrassing. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that happened? And they were talking and then it came up like, can you imagine if we were hit by a car? 
or something. Oh my God, that would be so embarrassing. I would be so embarrassed by that. Like everything, you know, oh, I don't know what I would do. I'd be so embarrassed. Like everything at that age is so embarrassing. And being talking about your feelings, like you're the most vulnerable part of yourself and crying in front of another uh, kid your age is you know, extraordinary. And, and that that film kind of gave them permission. Then that was so tough for us. Can you imagine then having it all on cell phones, everything you do and having to be out there all the time? It's, it's, (laughs) yeah, so much harder, so much harder to be a kid now. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to ponder the error of your ways. Any questions? Yeah. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. Can't believe this is really happening to me. Before this day is over, they'll break the rules. (coughs) Chicks cannot hold a smoke. That's what it is. Bear their souls. I'm a nymphomaniac. Are your parents aware of this? Take some chances. Being bad feels pretty good. And touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible. Why'd you do that? Because I knew you wouldn't. The Breakfast Club. After this period, you moved to France in your early 20s, right? Why? Well, I was really looking for some place where I, I, uh, I wasn't known, you know, because I kind of um, became famous uh, at a pretty young age. And, um, and I feel like I kind of needed to sort of be out of the public eye um, for a while. And that's kind of what France gave to me. I didn't know that I was going to move there when I went there. I, I went there originally on a job and then I just fell in love with France and then fell in love with the person and, you know, ended up staying. As it goes. <laughs> uh, yeah. As that, as it happens. Um, you know, I, I, it, it was really amazing for me to be somewhere um, other than Hollywood, you know, where I, when you're in Hollywood and, and you're, you know, it, it sort of feels like you're somewhere where nothing else matters except for these movies and having this, career and it really kind of and I felt like I wanted to know what what life was outside of that and so then I went to this place where where they think they're the center of the universe you know so then I was a center you know then I was like in this other place where you know everything's different and like the history that I had learned you know in school was not like you know it suddenly made me question everything um and and sort of like opened up my world in a way and really sort of changed my my life and certainly changed my trajectory you know i don't know if it was the greatest thing for my career as an actor at the time but it was um but it was it was really invaluable for my um development as a as a person as a as a human being i mean you were just 20 or something like that i mean that's a really mature thing to say I want to get out of this fame world this toxic we're the most I would say one of the most famous people in this world at that point yeah well I didn't know that I was doing it for that reason I think it's it's only in retrospect uh that when I look back on it and I think about the choices that I've made uh you know why why I was doing it I mean I knew that I wasn't happy at the time you know and and I was you know battling 
depression and anxiety and all of that. And, um, and just really didn't feel inspired by the kinds of roles that I was being offered Mm -hmm. at the time. And, um, and I knew that I, I had to do something to sort of get out of that. And I didn't know exactly what that was. I applied to college and I was accepted and I was, you know, my plan was to go to college, um, in the fall. And then I went to France and then, and then stayed there. And that sort of became my, my college. I've always done things a little bit, you know, differently. I I'm, I'm pretty self-educated. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's only in retrospect that I, understand what I was doing, but it was really just very instinctive at the time. It was just like, oh my God, this feels amazing. It was, it was like, it was feeling like I could breathe all of a sudden, you know, after sort of breathing through a straw, it was suddenly like, oh, I could actually breathe. And, you know, and, and I was just so, I just loved it, you know, and coming out of, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and, you know, where you're just kind of isolated in your car, you go from your, well, you know, if you go from your house to your car to another thing, you know, and it's, I, I really love living in a walking city, you know, when I, whenever I'm in France, I just, I just get out in the morning and I just walk and, and then I come home at the end of the, of the day and, and I just love that. And same in New York. I really love to be in places where I can just walk everywhere. What are the stories you want to tell now? I mean, be it the ones you write or or what you act in? Well, I want to tell stories about people, you know, about interesting women. Um, and, you know, I feel like there are a lot of incredible women out there and and... <laughs> And, you know, and I want to play them and I want to, I want to do stories that, that, that are about human relationships and, and, and love and, and, uh, you know, the complications of that and, you know, society and, you know, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know that that's what I'm drawn to and that's what I want to watch. So I I think I want to just make movies about people that I want to see, if that makes sense. And I'd also really like to work with, um, you know, interesting filmmakers. In fact, one of my favorite filmmakers I would love to work with uh, is Swedish. Who's? Mm -hmm. um, Let me guess. Yeah. Ruben. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Of course. I mean, I I love his movie. I think I've loved every movie that I've seen of mm-hmm. his. Um, you know, I and I am I am Swedish. I don't know if you know this. Oh, tell I me. Am, I am Swedish on one part of my family. In fact, I did I did this show uh called Who Do You Think You Are? Um that uh Lisa Kudrow uh produces, right. one of the producers. And they basically do your family tree and they say, you know, and you don't know where you're going, but they basically give you a, you know, they say pack for cold weather or warm weather, you know, pack for this amount of time, you know, and then they follow this story. And I was almost like 99% sure I was going to end up in Germany because of my name, you know, I thought I was going to end up in the Black Forest in Germany and then ended up in Sweden and it followed the Swedish line of my family 
So I got to go to Sweden and, uh, you know, Stockholm and my, my family, uh, it was my great grand, my great, great grandmother who came from Sweden and from Southern Sweden. And it was, it was amazing. I loved it. I like, I can't wait to go back. It was, it was great to like go and, and like, feel like, oh, my people, I get it. Like, you look like me. I can see like, you know, like, well, Ruslan would be so lucky to work with you. So I'm sure if, Here's this. You'll get the call. He's, I mean, he's incredible. I yeah. I really love. I mean, I just watched the square again with the uh, with my daughter. Like we we love his movies. Um, love Yorgos Lathimos, a uh, Greek. Um, would love to work with him. Wasn't your father from Greece? Wasn't you? No, no, no. My father is. I uh, know. I'm married to a Greek American. You're married. That's yeah. Yeah, yes. and all of my kids are half Greek. Well, according to them, they're full Greek. They, okay. uh, they, yeah, they, they reject the Swedish part. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the only part that they're okay with. They, they like the Swedish, uh, but, but they really love the, the Greek. Um, but yeah, I would love to work in other countries. I would love to do another movie in French. Mm-hmm. That would be, um, you know, cause I only did, I, I worked with Godard, but everything was in English and I only did one movie that was completely in French. Um, I'd also love to do more theater. Um, I would love to do a, a play in France. Um, I mean, there's still like a lot of of acting that I'm excited about um, doing. You know, I'm I'm really sort of ex- I'm really excited about this phase of my career. I saw you do Sarah um, Sally Bowles. Oh, did you? Yeah, <laughs> amazing. I mean, oh, for those if someone doesn't know what a good singer you are. Um, I can tell them now. So that's not an easy, there's some really big numbers in that one. Yeah, there's Mm. some really big numbers, but it's kind of an ingenious play because you actually don't have to be a great singer to be in the play because Sally is not supposed to be like a particularly great singer. So, you know, there it's been, it's been nice for a lot of, you know, actors who don't necessarily have uh, a singing voice, but yeah, I started out as a singer. So, uh, so it was uh, it was really fun to do that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I would love to do another play as well. Um, a musical, you know, there's there's a lot that I would love to do. Recently, I talked to Sofia Coppola, who's someone else who sort of followed trajectory of first making movies about being the teen and, and yeah. you know, exploring that. And then now we're talking about Priscilla, you know, now being the parents looking at the teen. Um, when you look at your teens or, or other teens in general, what is the main difference you see from the 80s teen that you were and what they're looking for in their female stories? Oh, I think it's so different now. Like I, like I, uh, like we talked about being a teenager. And I mean, first I have to say, I love Sofia Coppola. She's another uh, director that I would love to work with. I mean, both my daughter, Matilda and I just completely fangirl out over her and, you know, her aesthetic and, you know, she's, she's so, um, I think she's so massively talented. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they're looking for. I think, I think it's just really hard for them now to to unplug you know from from the phone they're on they're on their phones all the time they're constantly scrolling and it really has changed the way that they experience stories and storytelling um you know it's 
it's hard to know. I mean, they, they definitely, I know that, that, that Quibi, was that what it was called? The, the thing that, that, uh, that they were trying to put out with the, like the little, little short, short snippets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I know that that it. was a, a failure, but I think the, the basic premise I think makes sense because the way that our kids really digest um, their, their stories now, it's not long and drawn out the way that, that I learned, you know, how to, you know, when I learned how to make movies or, you know, be in movies, that's, that was, how we told stories and i think that's really changing um based on the way that they consume um their their content so you know i don't i don't really know i'm i'm always kind of interested to see what what they're drawn to and you know and, and obviously like kids are are different you know like what my 14 year old likes is very different than what my 20 year old likes and I don't think it's just a matter of age I think it's it's who they are as 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 people um you know my 20 year old Matilda who's also an actress now um you know has always really been interested in in art and cinema and you know and she she experiences everything as an artist um my 14 year old is very much a 14 year old and you know she's into whatever is trending on tiktok you know <laughs> like that's that's what she's into um you know so and i think that she's she's going to sort of like discover as she goes along um you know what what she wants and right. you know and hopefully there'll be some interesting you know hopefully I'm really hoping that that Hollywood kind of like not to say that like Marvel movies shouldn't exist. Obviously, they 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 fulfill a sort of need or desire or escapism or whatever it is. You know, my my son loves Marvel movies, as does my husband. They're like mm -hmm. the Marvel bros mm -hmm. together, um, you know, but I feel like they're it would be really nice if there was something to offset that a little bit because not everyone is going to be in Marvel movies. And I feel like there has been like a real dearth of, um, of movies about like, like the breakfast club movies that are, you know, sort of that speak for kids um, that are like intelligent and don't pander to them and are not exploiting in any way. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about watching your movies, like right together with, my kids um is that you see that it, it's the same things they're going through in a different scenario but in general it's the same anxieties and it's the same things and the oh, same yeah. who am i and and can i get out of this role and be someone else and and um so those movies are important all movies are important i just watched all of the strangers with my oldest son and that was hugely impactful so yeah you know yeah just... i think um i i just really want those movies to be made like i i feel like um eighth grade was was a movie that I really really loved you know the Bo Burnham movie Bo Burnham, uh, yeah. yeah Bo Burnham with uh Elsie Fisher a few years ago I felt like that was really um that to me is the most realistic movie about what it's like to be a teenager um right now with the you know with the social media you know it's like a real thing it's and I know like I don't want to sound alarmist or or anything but I really do think that it 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 is changing the brains of our kids 
in ways that like, I don't know what the answer is because there's, you know, you, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like it's not, it's not going to change. We can't all of a sudden say like, okay, now, now we won't do that. We realize that it's actually better if you're not on screens all the time, you know, it's mm -hmm. really, really hard. And once your kids get to a certain age, you know, they're just so much more digitally savvy than, than we are because they grew up with it. But, you know, I worry about what's, you know, how, what, what the long lasting impact of, of their brains are going to be. Anyway, that's like a really depressing note to end on. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that um, I'm so happy that your movies exist and that you, that you'll keep making these stories for us. And thank you so much for taking the time. It was a real thing for me to be able to talk to you. Oh, oh thank you. I look forward to talking to you again. Bye. Take care. Thank you so much to Molly Ringwald. Don't miss Feud, Capote versus the Swans. It's out now. And thank you so much for listening. Pop Culture Confidential is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.